You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 2. Today we're taking a break from our study of First and Second Kings that we've been in for the last several weeks because today is a holiday. You might not have realized it's a holiday, but today is Pentecost. And Pentecost is a holiday which, in my opinion, does not get enough attention. It doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. It probably doesn't get as much attention as National Donut Day or National Siblings Day or National Hamburger Day, which was just on Thursday. But uh, Pentecost is a day which I would say deserves much more attention than it usually gets. So today for Pentecost Sunday, we're going to take some time and study about Pentecost. What happened on Pentecost? Uh, What does Pentecost mean for us today in the 21st century? These are questions that we are going to be looking at in today's study. So would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's word. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, in our minds during this time. Lord, may we hear the leading and the guiding of your spirit. And Lord, may we not harden our hearts as we hear your voice today. But Lord, would you give us the ability and the strength to respond in faith to your word, to receive it, to put it into practice in our lives. And Lord, we do ask that you would anoint us and empower us to fulfill the callings you have given us in our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes when you look at somebody who's exceptionally good at something or uniquely gifted in some way, and you might say that that person was born to do that thing. You might say he was born for this or she was born to do this. And today, as we're looking at Pentecost, the thing you need to know about it is that Pentecost is a birthday. Today, Pentecost is the day when the Christian church was born when it came into existence. And as we look at what happened on the day of Pentecost, we can see the purpose for which the church was born, as well as we see some insight into God's purpose for our lives individually. The title of today's message is Born for This. And what we're going to see here in the book of Acts chapter 2 as we study through it is this. Here's the big idea. On Pentecost, the church was born as the Holy Spirit was poured out to empower us to carry out God's mission in the last days. Let me say that one more time. On Pentecost, the church was born as the Holy Spirit was poured out to empower us to carry out God's mission in the last days. Go ahead and take note of that sentence. You can write it down. You can memorize it because that is going to be the big idea of what we talk about today. And we're going to go through that statement step by step as we study this passage. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we read this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The word Pentecost literally means 50, because Pentecost is the 50th day after Passover. So 50th day after Passover. Pentecost was also the first day of the second most important Jewish festival. There were seven great Jewish feasts, and the second most important of them began on the day of Pentecost. It was called the Feast of Weeks. Sometimes it's also called the Feast of Ingathering. And this was essentially a harvest festival that took place at the end of the winter 
grain harvest, the winter grain harvest. So Pentecost was kind of a harvest festival that took place this time of year. And on Pentecost, every able-bodied Jew was expected to come up to Jerusalem. And what they would bring with them is they would bring with them sheaves of wheat to the temple to present a wave offering. Now, what is a wave offering? They would literally take these sheaves of wheat and they would wave them before the Lord in the temple courts as a way of thanking God and acknowledging that God had provided for them food for that year in that harvest. And according to Jewish tradition, Pentecost was also the day on which God had given the people of Israel the Ten Commandments. Remember, they came out of Egypt on Passover. They crossed through the Red Sea, and it was 50 days after Passover, after they came out of Egypt, that at the foot of Mount Sinai, God gave them the Ten Commandments. Now, historians tell us that the Feast of Weeks, which began on Pentecost, was the best attended of all the great feasts in the Jewish calendar. And the reason for that is because this is the time of year when traveling conditions were the most favorable. So you would have uh, the biggest turnout of the year for all the great feasts at the time of Pentecost. So you can imagine at this time of year, the city was packed, all the Airbnbs, right? You couldn't get an Airbnb to save your life. All the hotels were full. The streets were packed with people. Just wall-to-wall people, Jews from all over the world, had come to Jerusalem to celebrate this great feast. And we read there in verse 1, it says, They, who's they? The followers of Jesus were all together in one place. Now we know that that one place was a rented room, an upper room in a house. They had rented out this. And there were 120 followers of Jesus, committed followers of Jesus, who were there together in this place. In Acts chapter 1, we read about this. We read about these 120 as they gathered, as they waited in Jerusalem. And they were waiting there in Jerusalem. You might remember Jesus' followers were mostly from Galilee, which was about a two to three day walk away from Jerusalem. So what are they doing here in Jerusalem? Well, we read there, of course, Jesus had ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And before Jesus ascended into heaven, we read in Acts chapter one, that Jesus had told these 120 committed followers this thing. He said to them this, do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So there they were, waiting in this upper room of this rented house, 120 committed followers of Jesus, and they're waiting for this thing that Jesus said was going to happen any day now. And after nine days of waiting on the day of Pentecost, the first day of this harvest festival, the Feast of Weeks, we read in verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house in which they were sitting. Now, in both the Greek language and the Hebrew language, the word for spirit is the same word as the word for wind. So they would have understood that this wind was symbolic of the thing which Jesus had promised, that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them and and fill them just as Jesus had promised. Now, it says also that this time divided tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. So the Spirit wasn't only given to them as a group, as a whole, but also individually as well. And it says there in verse 3 that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
And it goes on, it says this. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them heard them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? Now you got to remember, Galileans were kind of considered, you know, backwoods, a little bit like uneducated people. And so they're saying, what are these uneducated Galileans doing speaking all these different languages? And they say, how is it that we hear in each in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were amazed and perplexed, and they were saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, saying they are filled with new wine. Now, we're told down in verse 15 that all of these things took place at 9 o'clock in the morning. So you can imagine by that time of the day, the streets are already full of people for this great festival. And the people in the streets, they hear this big commotion coming from the windows of this upper room in this building. And as they stop and they listen closer, they hear people speaking in different languages. And those who are from out of town, from other countries, they understand them speaking in their foreign languages. And what are they saying? It says they're proclaiming the mighty works of God in their different languages. And the people who heard this were amazed and they were confused and they wondered, what does this mean? Some people mocked them and said they must be a bunch of drunk people up there. But in verse 14, we read that Peter stood up and in the common language of the people, he lifted up his voice and he addressed them. And here's what he said. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only the third hour of the day, 9 a.m., but this, what is happening, is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. And then Peter goes on, and he's going to quote from Joel chapter 2, the book of the prophet Joel from the Old Testament. Here's what he says. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. See, the prophet Joel had prophesied hundreds of years before this that in the last days God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, prior to the coming of the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, that is an Old Testament term. It's used throughout the Old Testament, and it refers to what we would call in our day Judgment Day. It refers to Judgment Day. And what Peter is telling these people is that Judgment Day is coming. The Day of Judgment is coming. But if you turn to God, if you call upon Him, then you can receive mercy and He will save you. And beyond that, He won't only save you, but He will pour out His Holy Spirit upon you. Now, the question is, how does that happen? How does that work? How does God show us grace and show us mercy? Well, now Peter's going to tell us, and he turns the conversation to Jesus, starting in verse 22. In verse 22, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God 
God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, many of these people who were there for the Feast of Pentecost would have also been there 50 days earlier for the Feast of Passover. And even if they weren't, everyone would have known that there was this man named Jesus, who some people claimed was the Messiah, but he was crucified by the Roman authorities working together with the Jewish religious leaders. And they would have known that there were also claims that Jesus had raised from the dead even after he had been crucified. And so Peter stands up and he speaks to the people and he says, Jesus, he was put to death unfairly and unjustly, and yet... I love this verse. He says, and yet it was the plan and purpose of God all along that this take place. He was supposed to die because through his death, he made atonement for our sins. This is what was prophesied about and foretold in the Old Testament. He is the true Passover sacrifice, the lamb slain for the people so that death might pass over us. He was the one who was prophesied about and foretold in the Old Testament, the servant who would suffer for the sins of the people. And then starting in verse 25, Peter goes on and he quotes two psalms. The psalms are Psalm, one, or psalm 16 and Psalm 110. In Psalm 16, Peter shows that David, the psalm writer, had prophesied that the Messiah would die and then be resurrected to life, just as Jesus was. And then in Psalm 110, which he quotes later on, he shows that David actually called the Messiah Lord. Lord, by the way, for the Jewish people is a term which is reserved only for God. And remember, also he points out this Messiah. David knew that the Messiah was his own descendant, his great-great-grandchild. So why would he call him Lord? And Peter concludes, he lands the plane by saying this, Brothers, friends, don't you understand? God sent you the Messiah, and you killed him. But God raised him from the dead, just as David prophesied he would, just as the scriptures said. And it says this, it says that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In that moment, the light came on. They understood. Things became clear and they were filled with conviction. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter said to them there, he said in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 41 that those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to the church that day about 3,000 souls. And then we see here the birth of the church. That's what we're seeing. We're told in the next few verses about the early days of the early church, the kind of practices and attitudes that characterize the early church. We read in verse 42, they devoted themselves to four key things to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. These four practices were the pillars of the early church, and they're the pillar of the church even today. They, they should be the pillars of a, of a good, healthy church. The apostles' teaching, in other words, studying the scriptures and the word of God. Fellowship, committed Christian community, because we cannot become the people that God desires us to become apart from committed Christian community. The breaking of bread, 
bread, right? They would take communion to keep their hearts and their minds focused on the main thing, what Jesus has done for us to save us. And of course, prayers, seeking the Lord together, singing together in, in prayer and song, seeking the Lord. And it says in verse 47 that day by day, they were together, attending the temple together, breaking bread in each other's homes, praising God and having favor with all the people. And it says there in the verse 47 that the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. On the day of Pentecost, the church was born. On the day of Pentecost, the church was born. Now, Jesus had told his disciples prior to this that one of the purposes for which he had come was to establish his church. In Matthew chapter 16, we read about a time when Jesus was with his disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is in the far, far north of Israel. And he asked them, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some people say that you are the, basically the reincarnation of Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus said to them, okay, but who do you say that I am? And they said, um, you know, and by the way, I'll just stop right there and say this. That question, who do you say that Jesus is? That is perhaps the most important, the most consequential question that you will ever answer in your entire life. Because how you answer that question will shape not only the course of your life, but it will shape your eternal destiny. So that question not only who do other people say that Jesus is, but who do you say that Jesus is? It's perhaps the most important question. It's a question that all of us have to answer. And of all the disciples, we read that Peter was the first one to speak up. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and he said this, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He says, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. On what rock? On Peter? That's interesting because it's kind of a, a play on words. Peter's name, the word Petrus, it means rock. So is he saying he's going to build the church on Peter as a person? Is he saying that Peter will be the foundation of the church? Well, no, that can't be it because the church is founded on so much more than just one man. It's founded on more than just Peter. So what is this rock upon which Jesus will build the church? Well, many people believe that what Jesus is speaking of is the rock upon which the church is founded is that declaration that Peter made. The church will be founded on this great truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and he is the Son of the living God. So the foundation of the church, the rock on which it is founded, is faith in Jesus as Messiah and as the divine Son of God. And Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Now that statement's very important for two reasons. It tells us two things. Number one, it tells us that the church will be under attack from the forces of hell or the forces of evil. The church will be under attack. The second thing it tells us is that the church rather than hell will prevail. So the church will not be defeated though it is attacked by evil. Now that's really encouraging for me and for you. Here's why. Because I'll tell you what, whenever there's a crisis, there tend to be all these people who come out saying, well, 
who I don't know if the church is going to make it through this one. I don't know if the church is going to survive. Well, the answer to that question is, will the church survive? Yes, it will. Jesus already gave us a preview. And, and you know, the, all these people, so for, for so long, right, during the Enlightenment, they predicted that Christianity and other religions would die out as people outgrew the need for faith in God. Richard Dawkins has said that even recently, that Christianity and faith will die out. And in reality, we're seeing just the opposite happen. That in not in all parts of the world, but in some parts of the world, Christianity is growing like crazy. And, and so right now we're facing another crisis, aren't we? As a church and as a society, we're facing this coronavirus pandemic. And this, of course, has affected churches because we haven't been able to gather together. And, and that has, of course, prevented that the goal of not gathering together was to prevent the spread of the virus. But people will say, oh, I don't know if the church is going to survive this. Well, the truth is, that rather than waning, Christian faith around the world has continued to grow. Even this pandemic, as it's sent many of us online, again, that just helps us get the mission uh, further. It helps us get the gospel out. And the Christian church continues to thrive. See, of course, the church... I'll tell you what, of course the church is going to survive this corona pandemic. We've survived much worse than this before. In the first 300 years of Christianity, do you know that Christianity was considered what's called an illicit religion, which means it was a, not a legal religion, which means they were not allowed to have buildings. That's why the early church, for 300 years, they didn't have buildings. For much of that time, Sunday was not a day off. And so here's how Christians would worship. They would get up before sunrise, they would go to people's houses and they would celebrate with communion, with prayers, with singing. Then they would go to work. They'd work 10, 12-hour days. And then in the evening, they would gather again in someone's house to listen to someone teach from the scriptures. And they did this for hundreds of years. And the church thrived. The church survived persecutions, burnings, tortures, drownings. And yet rather than crushing the church and crushing faith, it caused the church to grow. You know, I was up in the mountains the other day, and as we were walking along, there were just these big pine cones everywhere. And as you step on those pine cones, what happens? You crush them. But what happens when you crush a pine cone? It's releasing the seeds. In other words, those pine cones need to be crushed in order to release their seeds. Another thing about these mountains here in Colorado, as you probably know, is that every few years we have devastating forest fires here in Colorado. And yet, there's a sense in which our mountains need those fires. The, the fires are good for them in a way, right? For a long time, uh, when people started moving into the mountains, there was this big push. Let's suppress forest fires, make sure they don't happen. But of course, there's been this realization that forest fires are a necessary part of the health of the forest in the mountains. Because when those fires happen, they burn off that kind of junk layer that collects over the years on the forest floor. They burn out the beetle kill, and they burn out the bugs and the fallen debris and the stuff that makes the forest sick. And the heat of the fire opens up the seeds and the pine cones, and it reseeds the forest and allows new growth to take place. Now, fires, in other words, actually play an important role in creating a healthy forest. And the same is true for the church, and you know what? The same is true for us as individuals as well. Tertullian, the early church father in the third century, he famously said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
Rather than destroying the church, persecution and hardship tends to have two effects. It tends to, on the one hand, cleanse the church, right? Clearing out some of the unhealthy stuff that creeps in over time. And it tends to be a catalyst for new growth, new growth. In the book of Acts, if you read through there, you'll find out that later on, as the persecution starts against the church, the persecution drives the believers who are concentrated in Jerusalem. It drives them fleeing in all directions from their persecutors. And what do they do? They flee into new areas as refugees. And wherever they settle down, they start new churches. They tell their neighbors about the gospel and Christianity spreads. We've seen it in more recent times. In the 20th century, we saw it in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe and in China. And right now in Iran, it's like the more you persecute the church, the more you are sowing the seeds for growth and renewal and new growth. You make it stronger. And in a way, I would say this. I would think biblically and also practically, if you look at spiritual health, I think you would have to say this. It is actually more precarious to be in a place of ease than it is to be in a place of squeeze. It's more precarious, more dangerous to be in a place of ease than it is to be in a place of squeeze. Because if you look at the Bible, notice this. When we get back into our study next week of First and Second Kings in chapter 9, we're going to see Solomon's greatest spiritual test and greatest spiritual danger comes when he's no longer working on building a temple. In other words, it's a time of ease. It's a time of relaxing. And of course, that is the greatest spiritual danger for him. We see it was also the case with his father, David, in 2 Samuel. In the Middle Ages, that was when the church faced no threats. And in, in Europe, that's also when a lot of weird stuff crept into the church. And it was at the end of the Middle Ages when people again started challenging Christianity and challenging Christian beliefs that led to incredible movements like the Reformation and the great theological and missionary movements that took place at those times. In other words, times of hardship for the church and for us personally, what they lead to are incredible opportunities for cleansing and new growth. See, because times of hardship, they cause you to think about and reconsider what really matters, what you really value. I mean, think about it. If your house is on fire, your priorities become very clear, very fast, right? If you, you've got a lot of junk in your house and there's, there's nothing wrong with that, it's not bad to own a lot of stuff, but if your house is on fire, your priorities become very clear, very fast, right? What are the things in your house that you're willing to run in and perhaps die for, right? It becomes really clear, really fast. Your kids, maybe a pet, maybe some keepsakes and not much else. In other words, things get really simple, when the house is on fire. And the same thing happens in your life when you face fiery trials in your life. Those fiery trials, they can bring a lot of clarity to your life. And it also can create space for new growth to take place. You know, I think right now we're in a sort of trial. This coronavirus situation has affected all of us. There is the isolation aspect of it that's, of course, getting to many of us. Some of us have been sick. Uh, many people have lost their jobs or suffered great financial setbacks. And what this situation has given us is, among other things, it's given us a chance to reset. 
It's given us a chance to reset and an opportunity to establish new patterns for our lives moving forward. And I want to encourage you to do that and pray through that because, you know, sometimes we can get so busy where it feels like we're just hanging on for dear life and our schedule is running away with us and we're just trying to keep up with our own schedule, right? The same, the things that we have, responsibilities and all that. But right now, as many things have been stripped away, I'll tell you what, this is an opportunity for a reset. This is an opportunity as things begin now to open back up. uh, I want to challenge you to do that, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in the way you spend your time, in the way you spend your money. Now is a time when you can reorganize and reset, and it's an opportunity for new growth with your finances, with your time. Now is the perfect time for you to establish new habits and new rhythms with intentionality, where you reflect on what you really value and what you really believe and what you want your life to be about. You know, again, over the past few months, so many things have been stripped away. And rather than just rushing back and trying to get back to normal, I want to encourage you, let this be a time of cleansing and let it be a time of new growth in your life and let it be uh, shaped by this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and establish new patterns for how you spend your time, how you spend your resources, etc. But we have this promise from Jesus that though the gates of hell will be attacking the church, Evil will not prevail. The church will stand. And that's really important for us to remember on Pentecost today as we remember the day when the church was born. And I tell you guys, we are going to survive this current crisis and we'll survive the next crisis. And whatever comes in the future, Jesus has told us that the church will survive. And as that's the case, I want to encourage you in this. God wants to use these things as catalysts in our lives and in our church for cleansing and for new growth. Okay, that brings us to our second point as we move through this statement, this sentence. On Pentecost, the church was born as the Holy Spirit was poured out. Throughout this chapter, we read these kind of phrases about the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit was poured out. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. The prophet Joel, in Joel chapter 2, he says that in the last days, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. What does that mean? What exactly was it that happened on Pentecost? And does this same kind of thing happen even today for people like us? In order to understand this, it's really important for us to get a a framework for the Holy Spirit. So let me just make it really simple. And, And I think this will be really helpful for you as you think about the Holy Spirit as you read the Bible, okay? There are three distinct relationships that the Holy Spirit has with different people in the Bible. Three distinct relationships. And they are summarized by the following words. You can kind of make a note of it. It'll help you remember in the future, and it'll help you as you read the Bible to understand, okay, what is this? What category does this fall into? Those three words are with, in, and upon. With, in, and upon. So let's talk about these three relationships and who they apply to. So first of all, the Holy Spirit is with all people. The Holy Spirit is with all people. The Holy Spirit is with you, and he's also with your friends and your family members who, who don't follow Jesus. He is with all people. Now, what is the Holy Spirit doing with all people? Well, Jesus tells us a lot about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John, chapters 14 and 16. So you might want to go and read those chapters, but let me just walk you through these three relationships. 
Jesus tells his disciple, he tells them, the Holy Spirit has been with you. You know him, for he has been with you. And then he tells them in John chapter 16 that the work of the Holy Spirit in this with relationship with people is this, that he is working to bring conviction in their hearts and in their minds about three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. What does that mean? Well, he's bringing conviction, number one, that people are sinners, right? People would recognize the fact that they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Number two, the, the second one is that God is righteous. In other words, God is righteous, but they're sinners and they've fallen short. And the third thing is judgment, that there will be a day when they will stand to give account to God. So sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the whole purpose of this conviction is what? It is to draw them to Jesus, to help them realize their need for a Savior and embrace the Savior who God has provided so they can receive the grace of God that has been offered to them. Now, the Holy Spirit is doing that work, right? So that in the deepest jungles, the, the Holy Spirit is doing that work. In the 1040 window, that window of the world, the latitude, longitude, where there are the fewest Christians, the Holy Spirit is doing that work. The Holy Spirit is doing that work in your friends and family members. The Holy Spirit is doing that work even in you and I. And see, what happens, the Bible says, is that uh, you can resist this and you can harden your heart against this prodding of the Holy Spirit. And the, the Bible describes that as developing a calloused heart. If you've ever played the guitar, you know what calluses are all about. The first couple times you play the guitar, sometimes your fingers might hurt. They might bleed. But over time, you build up calluses, this thickness. And what happens with calluses is that you develop this hardness. And as that hardness develops, you are no longer as sensitive as you used to be. You no longer feel what you used to feel. And so as people harden their hearts against the prodding of the Holy Spirit, again, they're building up calluses on their hearts. And what happens is after a while, you stop feeling, you cease being sensitive to the nudging of the Holy Spirit because your heart becomes calloused and hard. And that's not a good place to be. In fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews warns us about that. He says, if you hear the Lord calling you today, do not harden your heart. Now, on the one hand, you shouldn't harden your heart because none of us knows how much time we have left. That's why the writer says, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not promised for any of us. But on the other hand, there's also this danger of hardening your heart, lest you develop a calloused, hardened heart, which is unable to feel any longer. So that's the first relationship, the with relationship. The next relationship that we see the Holy Spirit has with people is the in in relationship. So the Holy Spirit is with all people, but the Holy Spirit is in those who are believers. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 17, he said, the Holy Spirit has been with you, but soon he will also be in you. In our study last week in 1 Kings chapter 8, we talked about this, how we in Christ become temples of the living God, right? God places the light of his glory within us. He places his spirit in us when we believe as a seal, as a guarantee, as his stamp of approval on us that he has redeemed us, that we are his, that we belong to him, and he is going to see us through. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, we're told that when we put our faith in Jesus, 
Jesus, God puts his seal on us and has given us his spirit as a guarantee in our hearts. And as the Holy Spirit is in us, he's working to transform us from the inside out. We call this sanctification. Sanctification is that work of the Spirit within us to make us day by day more like Jesus. And he does that from inside out. The Holy Spirit is also within us to lead us, to teach us, to guide us into all truth, Jesus said. So the Holy Spirit is with all people, convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, drawing them to Jesus, the Savior. And the Holy Spirit is in those who believe. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that if someone doesn't have the Spirit, they do not belong to Christ. So every believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. But then there's a third relationship, okay? A third relationship, and that is the upon relationship. The Holy Spirit comes upon some people to empower them to carry out the calling or the mission that God has placed on their lives. Now, this is distinct from the indwelling of the Spirit. This is the empowering of the Spirit. And here's what's interesting. We read about this in the Old Testament as well. We read about how the Holy Spirit came upon the judges and upon the kings in order to empower them to carry out their callings. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings would also be anointed with oil as a sign or a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon them to empower them to carry out their calling or their ministry. And how encouraging, by the way, is that for us to see that when God calls you to do something, he doesn't only tell you what to do, but he also empowers you to carry out that calling he's given you. Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was with people, and we see sometimes the Holy Spirit was upon people. But here at Pentecost, this is the time where now after Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, now that that work is complete, now for the first time we see the Holy Spirit in people, indwelling them as that seal, as that promise. And that's why we say that on Pentecost, the church was born. So what happened on the day of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit was essentially two things. That number one, the Spirit indwelt those who believed. And number two, the Spirit also came upon these believers to empower them beyond their natural capabilities to carry out the mission and the calling that God had given them. Peter, by the way, is an incredible example of this. Remember that Peter had denied Jesus three times. That night when Jesus was crucified, he was afraid, he was timid. But here we see Peter not only restored and, and God putting his stamp of approval on Peter, that Peter is indeed sealed and redeemed as a guarantee of his salvation. But Peter is then empowered by the Spirit, and he speaks boldly without fear in the same city where 50 days earlier, he had hidden in fear from people, afraid to admit that he was a believer and a follower of Jesus, lest what they do to him. And throughout the book of Acts, by the way, this is a consistent pattern we see that when the Holy Spirit comes upon to empower, one of the effects is boldness, boldness to carry out God's calling and God's mission on your life. And that brings us to our final part of this sentence, which is this. On Pentecost, the church was born as the Holy Spirit was poured out to empower us to carry out God's mission in the last days. Now, in verse 17, when Peter quoted from Joel chapter 2, Joel said that in the last days, God would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. 
Now what's happening here, Peter is identifying the time that they are in at that moment as the time which Joel spoke about. So in other words, Peter is identifying that time as the beginning of the last days. Now you might hear that and you might say, well, I don't know, right? I mean, look, it's been 2,000 years. Are, are you sure that those were the last days? I mean, 2,000 years have passed since then. So if the early Christians thought they were living in the last days, well, apparently they were wrong. And therefore, we might be wrong to think that we're living in the last days. And the answer to that question is simply this. The end times or the last days is a period of time which began with Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost. Now, the last days, in other words, is the final period of time in history before the coming of the Lord. And we are in that period right now. We've been in that period for the last 2,000 years. Now, you could think of it like this. You could think of history as kind of like a timeline, right? Moving forward from the beginning to the end. And you can see that timeline moving forward, moving forward. But at the ascension of Jesus, it took a sharp 90-degree turn. And now it's running parallel to the end of the age and the return of Jesus for almost 2,000 years. Now, we don't know when that's going to happen. It could be any time. No one knows. But you might ask, why does that matter? Should, what should it do to us? Should it make us nervous? Should we feel like, hey, Jesus is coming back any minute. Now I can coast. I'm going to max out on my credit cards and take up a new hobby called smoking, right? Because Jesus is coming back in, you know, 15 minutes from now. So who cares what I do, right? No, and just the opposite. It should fill us with a sense of urgency, right? The urgency is this. Right now, we're living in a particular window of time when people can receive God's grace and God's mercy and forgiveness, when people can be saved and redeemed. But at some point in the future, that window is going to close. And so knowing this, that there's this sense of urgency that says, we don't know how much time we have left on this mission that God has given us. We want as many people to come to the knowledge of Jesus and to a saving relationship with him before it's too late. And so on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out to empower us to carry out God's mission in the last days. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, Jesus told his disciples something very important before he ascended into heaven. In, in chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples come to him and they say, Okay, Jesus, so uh, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, they're like, Okay, so uh, we know that you had to do that dying and resurrecting thing, but now that you're done with that, now are you going to drive out the Romans and, and bring back the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' response is, check this out, he says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, right now in the midst of this pandemic, I've had so many people ask me, do you think this is the end of the world? And you know what my answer is? I say, well, you know what Jesus would say if you asked him that question? He would say this, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you can be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know, that outline really is kind of like concentric circles, right? For us, it would be Longmont and northern Colorado and the American West and to the ends of the earth, right? And so rather than being obsessed with when 
things are going to take place, when Jesus is coming back, when the kingdom will be established, Jesus wants us to be focused right now on our mission in the world of bringing his love to a hurting world. The purpose of being filled with the Holy Spirit is not to give you goosebumps. It's not to give you special abilities that you can show off with. No, the purpose of the power is so that you can carry out his mission effectively for the good of others. So what does Pentecost mean for you and me today? Here's what it means. Because of what Jesus did for you, the Holy Spirit, who has been with you, can now be in you. You can be born again as a child of God. He puts his stamp of approval on you when you put your faith in Jesus. And if you haven't taken that step yet, if you've been resisting the prodding of the Holy Spirit, bringing that conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment in your heart, if you've been doing that, I would encourage you today to stop resisting and embrace the gospel by faith. Embrace what Jesus did for you to save you. When you do that, the Holy Spirit will come into you and indwell you, seal you, and begin a work of transformation in your life. Beyond that, I want you to know this. The coming of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if you have received the gospel, here's what it means. It means that you are loved. It means that you have been redeemed. And it means this, that you have also been commissioned. So I want to challenge you to ask God to give you that empowering from on high to carry out the callings that he has put in your life. And may God use these trying times we are in now to create new growth and cleansing in our lives that we might more effectively fulfill these callings he has placed upon our lives. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.